Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. I think you and I need to get busy living the Bible. If I can just put it that way, get busy living the Bible. How do I do that? Take out your business card, look at your title. What are you? What's your job description? What's the firm on your card? You say, I don't have a business card, I'm a mom. Well, great, there's probably more about your job description in the Bible than there is about the guy sitting next to you. God has lots of things that he wants you to do. The problem is we often don't do the things that are hard. days, there's a lot of pressure to keep our spiritual life separate from everything else. But in the Christian life, they are one and the same. Our values should shape our decisions and actions and should not be compartmentalized. Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is encouraging us to live the Bible out in everything we do so we can become all we were intended to be. We've reached 2 Samuel chapter 8 in our verse-by-verse study through this Old Testament book. Well, let's get started. The army ads encourage the potential recruit to consider this phrase. They say, you need to be all that you can be. Surely you've heard this. Be all that you can be. Well, I started thinking about that last time I saw that, and I thought, well, that's an interesting phrase, being all I can be. A lot of things I can be. I could be a a circus clown. I could be a, a pizza chef. I could be lots of things in life and perhaps do some things better in those fields than I can in the field that I'm in. I mean, maybe I would create better pizzas than sermons. I don't know. It's potential. I've not tried it, because there's lots I can do, lots I could do. So it's really almost an illogical statement to say, be all you can be. The real question in life, I suppose, is being all that we should be. That's a whole other question, miles away from the other, trying to think through what I should be. And it's not the ever-popular being what I want to be. We asked our children that, what do you want to be? Well, that's not really the issue either if we think about it. It's really what we're supposed to be. What were we designed to be? What were we intended to be? Why did God put us where he put us? Why did he place us on the timeline where he has? Why has he put us in the family and given us the traits and skills and personalities? Given us? Why has he done that? He's got a idea, a job, a task, a role in life that he wants us to play, and we need to figure out what that is. And we need to be all that we are supposed to be. That's a nagging question for some of us, and it seems that in particular stages of life, it haunts us a little bit more than others. In the non-Christian world, they call it the, the midlife crisis. When people stop telling you how young you look and how you have your whole life ahead of you, you start to think about whether I'm really uh, expending my life in the right place. You're settled in your job, you're settled in your relationships, you're pretty much settled in life, it seems, and you start thinking, well, is it really where I should be? Have I missed the turn somewhere, and am I investing my life in the wrong place? Because it's being expended, it seems, rather quickly, and, you know, I'm halfway there. I just wonder if by the end of this road called life, I'll look back and think, I hit the bullseye. My life really did what it was supposed to do. And any time you look in the Bible, you see people that we might admire who seem to have a, a resolve that seems so crystal clear. They say things like in Acts 20, when the Ephesian elders were told by Paul that 
hey, I, I, I don't consider anything important, not even my own life, Paul says, except that I might complete the task that the Lord has given me to do. Now, that is a guy who seems to know what he's all about. He seems to have his direction laid out in life, and he knows where he's going because he's confident I am investing my life in the right place. This is what God has created me to be. And it's imperative for Christians to get there. All of us really should answer that question. No matter what stage in life we find ourselves in, you need to be sure that you are the person and are becoming the person that God had designed, intended, and wanted you to be. I think for some help, we can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 8 to see a snapshot of David's life where he is living out in a very active way what he is confident God wants him to be. And I want to show you how David does it. I want to show you the manner in which he does it. And it may beg the question, uh, well, how do you know what it is if he's doing it with such uh, virtuous character? Why? I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. More on that in a minute. But let's at least get, first of all, the context. This comes on the heels of probably one of the most important theologically significant Old Testament chapters in all of the Bible. It is the Davidic covenant, as it's often called, where God says to David, you are the king, I've brought you from shepherding sheep to shepherding my people, and now I'm going to use you in a very specific way to do some great things in this nation, and when you're dead and gone, I'm going to raise up a dynasty from your children. A dynasty, actually, that will never end. It'll be eternal. And the implication is one will come from your line, from your dynasty, from your descendants who will rule and reign forever. That was a huge promise and a hugely significant passage of Scripture. And all of this, as we looked at for two weeks, leaves us, I would hope, with an impression of God's grace. How incredible that God would do this for David. David, a guy who is is riddled with failures and sin and transgressions and weaknesses, and God says, I'm going to use you to do something great, or I'm going to make you someone great. But what we see beginning in chapter 8 is David springing into action in a lot of the very ways that we saw implied and even explicit in the Davidic covenant. We see David going off to battle. He is, mind you, the commander-in-chief of the Israeli forces. He is in charge of the army. He is the king, and he is responsible ultimately in the kingdom for the security of the borders and the defeat of all the foreign enemies that would encroach the territory of Israel. So this is his job. And he goes about it with a vigor. Look at it in verse number one through verse number six. The text says, in the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and he subdued them. Very strong verbs here, very active verbs. He defeated and he subdued. He took Megath Amah from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites, and he did it in an incredible way. Look at the the incredible carnage that takes place here. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord, and every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites, as you might imagine, became subject to David and brought him tribute, taxes, payment. Moreover, and there's more battles for David here, David fights Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, When he went to restore his, I believe that's David's control along the Euphrates. More on that in a minute. Verse 4, another active battle term. He captured a 1,000 chariots and 7,000 charioteers and 20,000 foot soldiers. And he hamstrung all but a 100 of the chariot horses. 
When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, a king of Zobah, David struck down 20,000 of them. And he put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus. And the Arameans became subject to him and brought him tribute. And Yahweh gave David victory wherever he went, lest we forget this is about God's grace, God accomplishing through David, not David doing for God. Now this, though, is filled with verbs. Look at them again in verse 1. He he defeated, he subdued. Look at verse 2, he defeated. Look at verse 3, David fought. Verse 4, David captured. Verse 5, middle of the verse, David struck down. David is doing a lot of stuff, and it's a lot of bad stuff, too. At least it seems to be as we look at it. He's killing people, he's hamstringing horses, he's doing a lot of violent, bloody, gory, terrible things. But before your critic, or perhaps yourself, begins to dismiss this as a terrible, violent snapshot of carnage that God has no right to see carried out through David or anyone else, you need to catch it in context. You're not going to find the context in chapter 7 or chapter 9. I mean the broad context of the Old Testament. If you remember anything about the promised land, God was bringing in the Israelites into the promised land under the direction of Joshua so that they might expel the peoples that lived in the promised land. And the peoples in the promised land were an incredibly vile, perverse, immoral, idolatrous group of people. Now I say that, and that's a Sunday school rambling of words to describe bad people, and you may think of a few people you see on the evening news, but it's much, 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 much worse than that. Because the whole society was corrupt, and every one of these people groups was filled with anarchy and injustice, and there were no enforcement of of any acceptable moral standards or laws. The judges could be bought, bribes at every corner. It was complete and total chaos, with religious overtones that would lead these otherwise intelligent people, it seems, to do incredibly stupid things, like sacrifice their firstborn infants to a god and have their bodies thrown somewhere into a fire, thinking they were doing their religious duty, and the pure eyes and holy eyes of God looked down on that society and said, away with them. I've got to destroy and expel them. They've had warning, they've had grace, they've had patience, and now my justice is going to reign in these people groups that exist in Palestine, and I'm going to use Israel to be my arm of retribution. You take a look at this passage, and I've had some people respond to it quite negatively. You've got to realize it's as unfair to judge God's character on this passage as it would be to judge the Allied forces' character by one snapshot of them dropping bombs on Hitler's SS men. You know what I'm saying? That would seem like a bad thing to do, killing people with bombs, right? Having bombers drop, you know, uh, explosive devices on, on, on nicely dressed soldiers. But you and I know the context of that. And anybody would realize if they've read their history books or have experienced this by living through it, they know that Hitler and his men needed to be exterminated. They needed to be stopped and there had to be some kind of act of violence to do away with it. And so we see David jumping into action in a job I don't want, being an enforcer of God's retribution. Someone who says to people who've had every warning in the book to get out of town, to leave this country, and to disband all their wicked, evil, immoral behavior, and they refused. Now you think, why is this happening now? Didn't God command this hundreds of years previous? He did, but they didn't finish the job. You remember, we've talked about that before. David's first act as the king, what did we say? What was it? He marched into a place that was right smack dab in the middle of Israel, a Jebusite city. And he said, you know what, this city does not belong here. And they had snubbed their nose at Yahweh for 
years saying, you're not going to take our city. We've got weapons of war that are too advanced. We've got walls that are too thick and too high. You're not going to get in here and tell us how to live. Forget it. We're going to hold our own. And they held their ground and the children of Israel were not able and were not willing to trust God to expel these wicked people. So this immoral, idolatrous, child-sacrificing group of people existed right smack dab in the middle of this promised land. And David said, I'm going to take that city. And he does. And he calls it from that point on, and it was known as the city of David, and it's called today the city of Jerusalem. And there it sat as one of the last major cities in Palestine to be conquered by the Israelis, and it actually became the capital of the nation. But you know, if you read carefully in the Old Testament... And I'd like you to look at a couple of verses right now. If you would hold your finger here and turn back to Genesis 15. It was at the very, very beginning that God had said, all of the peoples on my hit list need to be removed because they've been warned, they've had patience, they've had mercy, they've had grace, and they refuse to repent, so it's judgment time. And I need you to take care of them. And he foresaw all this in a promise he made to Abram, later to become Abraham. And God says to Abram in Genesis chapter 15, drop your eyes, if you would, in this passage down to verse 18. And it says, on that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land. Now, note this very, very carefully. What land is it from the river or literally in the Hebrew from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river Euphrates? And then he starts naming all these people groups that God had become fed up with who had had all the chances to repent and to change their ways and would soon get warning that the children of Israel were coming. And in a few hundred years, they would have the fear of the Lord, Rahab told the spies, on all everybody's mind because they were afraid they were going to be destroyed. And they had been told by God, get out of town, and those that refused would be killed. Well, if you look carefully at what I told you to look carefully at, you see, if you know your geography from the river of Egypt all the way to the great river Euphrates, if you look at a map, you understand, don't you, that Israel had never really conquered that land. Never was there in the books of Joshua or in the books of Judges the children of Israel really doing the job that God had called them to do. But in this passage, if you'd look back at it, 2 Samuel 8, David said, if I'm really the king of Israel, commander of the Israeli forces, and God is going to use me to bring peace and security to the land, then I need to push these people back. And I need to get these people that are thumbing their nose at God, I need to put them out. They need to be judged as God had promised. So you see these terrible things happening. And you may say in that passage, for instance, in verse 2, that seems terribly, terribly unfair. Well, I I think if if you know the context, it's quite gracious that David takes the soldiers, the men of this country that were willing to fight, and says, I'll kill two thirds of you and I'll spare a third of you. Matter of fact, if you know this in context, it becomes quite a picture of David's gracious manner in which he subdued the nations that surrounded Israel that shouldn't even have had foot in the promised land. But the point is, if you think of it carefully, that David's busy activity in the first six verses of 2 Samuel 8 shows that he is anxious to do what God has called him to do. And if you, like me, look at this and say, if I'm going to use this as a pattern or an inspiration for my own life, it's not quite a good parallel because I don't have a Davidic covenant that sits right before this, right? I don't have a Davidic covenant in my life that I got. I don't have God coming down through the prophet Nathan telling me exactly what he wants me to do because if you glance across the page, don't you see that there? Verse 10, I'm going to provide a place for my people. This is 2 Samuel 7. I'm going to plant them so they have a home of their own, no longer disturbed, wicked people, not just foreign people. These were wicked, idolatrous, sinful, child-sacrificing people will not oppress them anymore. 
Middle of verse 11, I will also give you rest from all your enemies. He knew, based on this word through Nathan the prophet, that he was called to be a leader of soldiers that would carry out God's justice amongst these people groups. I'm thinking to myself as I look at this that it didn't quite fare. Because sometimes I think, am I really spending my life in the right place? Am I really involved in the activities God wants me involved? Am I really in the position in the career that God wants me in? I can't look to some writing on the wall, some Macedonian call, some Davidic covenant. There's no Micah covenant that I found in the Bible, you know? So I can't point to that and say, well, that's why I'm the pastor. You know, this big sign fell out of heaven or the gospel blimp flew over and, and spelled it out for me or the seagulls made a pattern in the sky. I can't do any of that because it didn't happen. So how do I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to do? This may shock you, but if I look carefully at David's life and I'm looking at his calling to be who he was and I'm looking at the Davidic covenant in chapter 7, are you ready for this? I don't think he needed the Davidic covenant to live out chapter 8. And I just proved it to you because we've read a passage from the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15 that made it clear where Israel was to occupy. All David needed to do was pull his business card out, look at his title, look at a map, and realize he had a job to do. That he should be a soldier and a warrior. And you know, by the time David was done with his career, they had established the kingdom where it was intended to be, and his son Solomon didn't have to fight any battles. Did you know that? It's not that God's into war. It's that God wanted them to finish the job that Joshua started. And he didn't need a Davidic covenant to make it clear. And here's my implication for you. You don't need a Davidic covenant either. You don't need some kind of writing on the wall, some Macedonian call to tell you what you're supposed to do. Because all you have to do right now is pull out your business card, okay? Here it is. And all you got to do is find out who you are. And then you need to look at what God's Word says, because David, all he would really have to do is pull out the Pentateuch. If he pulled out the first five books of the Old Testament, which according to Deuteronomy, he was required to make himself a copy when he became king. If he were to look at that, he would know exactly what his job is. And all he would have to do is what he finally gets to doing in chapter 8. He would have to get busy living out what the Bible said. If you're taking notes this morning, that's the first thing. I think you and I need to get busy living the Bible. If I can just put it that way. Get busy living the Bible. How do I do that? Take out your business card, look at your title. What are you? You say, I don't have a business card, I'm a mom. Well, great. There's probably more about your job description in the Bible than there is about the guy sitting next to you. God has lots of things that he wants you to do. The problem is we often don't do the things that are hard. David did the easy and obvious things. Before the Davidic covenant, he didn't do the hard things, which were push the biblical obedient thing to the borders. Do what I've called you to do, even the hard things. And he needed a little encouragement. So God steps in and gives him a kick in the pants through Nathan and says, you know what, you need to secure the borders of Israel. Oh, but how does that work? I'm an architect. You know, I, I, it says right there, architect. I mean, how, anything in the Bible about that? Where do I look that? Yeah, there's a lot in the Bible about that. Let me just ask you some questions. We'll start with general. We'll go to specific. Do you work in an architectural firm that uh, has got non-Christians in it? Well, let's just talk about all of us. Do you work in a place where there are non-Christians? Give me a head nod if that applies to you. Okay, three of you. Anybody else work in a place <laughs> with non-Christians in it? You do, right? Okay. Did you know the Bible has a lot to say for non-Christians living or Christians living in non-Christian places and working in non-Christian environments? A lot. I mean, we can start the most general. What does the Bible say in, in Matthew chapter 5? You're supposed to be two words he uses, salt and 
light. Well, that means that your presence there and your input on policies and ethics in your office should shape the way that office goes. And you ought to, by your very Christian influence, change the way things happen. I mean, that's just a general thing. Even more specific, in Ephesians chapter 4, it says that your job in a non-Christian environment, when you rub shoulders with non-Christians, is to say something like this. And you don't have to put it in these words, but here's the New Testament words. Arise, O sleeper, and let Christ shine on you. You might want to pick a better phrase than that when it comes to your coworkers, but the Bible says that your job is to be an ambassador. 2 Corinthians 5, representing God with a message of reconciliation. You shared the gospel with everybody in your office yet? Oh, I invited a couple to church. Well, then you haven't really secured the borders. You know what I'm saying? You're king, and it says Israeli king, commander-in-chief of the Israeli forces, but you haven't finished your job there yet. Do you see what I'm saying? Well, I'm, I, 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 I'm a waitress. Oh, okay, anything in the Bible about that? Lots. Did you know that? Lots in the Bible about anyone who, who, who works in a service industry. Ephesians and Colossians both say, if you are serving, you are to serve as if your customer were who? Christ. Now, that'll change the way you, you serve up, you know, lasagna, right? If I'm thinking I got, you know, uh, Christ in, in, in booth 22, you know, that, I start, to, I start to think about that. I used to sell shoes. Can you imagine if I really took that seriously and said, okay, my job here, I, I got a card and it says shoe salesman, Mike Fabar. Okay, what does the Bible have to say about that? The Bible has a lot to say about that. It says that when the next person walks through those doors and needs a pair of shoes, I better treat that person as though it were Christ looking for a pair of shoes. Do you think I would change the way I, I respond? Do you think I'd say to Christ, hey, those look really good? <laughs> you know? No. It would change the way I do it. And if I haven't expanded my mind to see what the Bible has to say based on the particular imperatives for whatever job I'm in, then I really haven't, I haven't expanded the borders. I haven't fulfilled my role in that place yet. Well, perhaps you're, a, you're, you're in law enforcement or perhaps you're, you're a lawyer. Think about that. The, the calling of God on those kinds of jobs in the Bible, is it clear? Oh my goodness. To uphold justice. To make sure that rights of the needy are not perverted, to do what is equitable and just. Those kinds of commands are all over the Bible for those in positions like that. What you have to do is take your business card and an open Bible and say, have I fulfilled my job description? If David would have done that, Pentateuch in one hand, business card in the other, and said, what does that have to say about this? He would have known that chapter 8 could have happened in chapter 6. You see that? A challenge to ensure we're living out the Bible in our everyday lives. You're listening to Focal Point and a message called Becoming All You Were Intended to Be from Pastor Mike Fabares. If you missed any part of Pastor Mike's study through 2 Samuel, you can catch up online and listen on demand when you visit focalpointradio.org. You can also download these messages on your favorite podcasting app or stream them using the free Focal Point app. Focal Point airs on more than 800 radio stations and outlets across the United States and is worldwide through the Internet. The program is freely available because broadcasting and production costs are funded by listeners. And if you're among those who support this program, I'd like to extend our heartfelt thanks because your giving enables others to hear the truth of God's Word. To show our gratitude for your gift today, we'd like to send you a book that outlines God's plan of salvation in a clear and concise way. It's a classic resource called All of Grace by the much-loved 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon. 
The free gift of grace expressed throughout Scripture gives us a warm and thankful heart for God's mercy and love. Salvation, after all, is available to all who seek it. We'll send you a copy of All of Grace as our way of saying thanks for your generosity today. To make a donation, call 888-320-5885. You can also give online at focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. And if today is your first time joining us, we have a free resource we'd like to send you to say welcome. It's a booklet that answers the question, Who is God? Request your copy at focalpointradio.org. And while you're online, sign up for our devotional email. Each week, you'll receive an uplifting devotional from Pastor Mike, a refreshing reminder to turn your thoughts toward God. And it's free. Go to focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again Wednesday, right here on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. You know, it's an honor to be with you every day, helping you explore the depths of Scripture. But I want to be clear, no amount of Bible knowledge is ever going to save you. Be sure where you stand with God. Get in touch with us. We'd love to pray with you and for you. Visit us today at focalpointradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.